This morning, I'm continuing a series of sermons on the Gospel of Mark. The goal of this series is to meet Jesus as He really is, not as we imagine Him to be. So often, we're tempted to shape Jesus into our own image so that He conforms to our preconceived notions and ideas about Him. Rather than meeting the real Jesus who comes to us in the pages of Scripture... Too often it's easy for us to create our own Jesus. And that kind of Jesus is actually pretty easy for us to live with. Because he never contradicts us. Or challenges us. Or causes us to change. Tim Keller, a well-known Presbyterian pastor and author, put it this way. He says, a Jesus you create... A Jesus who's a projection of your own desires can't contradict you, obviously, can't challenge you, can't help you, can't change you. If you're going to have a Jesus who really helps you or changes you, it has to be Jesus with his own reality, one you didn't create. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus that were written down when the apostles and the first generation of eyewitnesses were dying off so that we could have forever access to the real Jesus. Now, during the first decades of the Christian movement, many believers could testify to having actually met the risen Jesus and to have sat at the feet of the original apostles and who could therefore challenge false notions about Jesus and his teachings when they arose. For example, if the rumor spread that Jesus could be regularly seen uh, flying on a magic carpet over the Sea of Galilee... There were people still around who knew him, or who knew those who knew him, and they could correct the record. But as soon as that, those first generations of Christians began to die out, false notions about Jesus and his teachings began to spread. And so the early church came to realize that the truth about Jesus needed to be preserved, and therefore needed to be written down. And scholars believe that St. Mark's Gospel is the first Gospel to have written, been written about A.D. 60. And it's based on the memoirs, the memories of St. Peter himself. So we come again to the Gospel of Mark in order to meet the real Jesus. And if you, if you remember, Mark is concerned to show that Jesus, the Son of God, is a man of action. This gospel is more concerned about Jesus' doings than his teachings, although his teachings are certainly not neglected. And uh, if you've been with me in the past, you we have seen this word in, in English immediately appear again and again throughout the gospel record of Mark to introduce a new scene or, or a new event in Jesus' ministry. Immediately the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, Immediately they called out to him. Immediately they left the synagogue, and so on and so on. This continuous use of the word immediately in Mark conveys not so much hurried or frenzied activity as much as an urgent sense of purpose, a prompt response to need, a focus on doing God's will. But there is no doubt from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus is one busy guy. He is extremely active in the work of the kingdom of God. He's a man of purposeful action. 
So in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we have actually a sample of a day in the life of Jesus. On the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his habit. He worshipped there with his fellow Jews. And he was offered the Torah, the law of God. And uh, Jesus would have read the Torah, and then he preached. And in the middle of that worship service, there was a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, and Jesus healed him. And then we pick up the story beginning at verse 29 of the first chapter. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, one gets the sense from this little snapshot of a day in the life of Jesus that Jesus was constantly bombarded by human need. As soon as the report went out that he healed the man possessed with an unclean spirit, well, you know how news spread. And everybody who had some sort of a physical illness, mental illness, unclean spirit, or what have you, they came to make an appointment with Jesus. The whole city was gathered about the door, says Mark. I mean, there was quite a commotion. I mean, a healer had come to town, and so everybody went who had a need. People were pressing in all around him, and the response was absolutely overwhelming. Everybody's looking for you. Now, Jesus' response to all this extreme busyness, this time of feverish, over-the-top activity, is different from what you and I would do. For when we find ourselves, I would imagine, when we find ourselves super busy with demands to be met and people to see and things we have to do, important things to do, and we're being highly productive in the process, one of the first things to go is times of quiet, solitude, and prayer. I mean, who has time to pray when life gets hectic and goes crazy and when we're accomplishing a lot and there are important opportunities which we have to take advantage of? But Jesus, who was beset with human need and who had the world's most important agenda, gave absolute priority to the practice of prayer. After a busy round of ministry and before going on to new fields of service, we are told, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, 
and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The Greek word for solitary place, the word is eremos. It's the same word that was used of the wilderness where Jesus was tempted. It's a desert place. It's a wilderness place. And often, especially in the Old Testament scriptures, the wilderness is a place where one encounters God. It's a place uh, that's uninhabited, that's free of ordinary distractions and the incessant demands of life and ministry so that one can concentrate solely on one's life before God. So Jesus got away from the crowds and even away from his own disciples to find a place of quiet contemplation. He needed to do that. And what we learn from the gospel record is that the busier Jesus got, the more he had to pray. The more demands placed upon him, the more he had to find time alone to commune with his Father. Prayer was the very foundation of Jesus' life and ministry. It was the absolute priority in his life. It was the very secret of his power. Now you will notice in this passage that we read just now, there is nothing about the content of his prayer. We don't know what he prayed. But if you look at Jesus' prayer life, in this gospel and the other gospels as well, we can be certain that the very first word on his heart and in his mind was the word Father, in Aramaic, Abba, an informal Daddy. Jesus' disciples had long noticed Jesus' habit of prayer and how he came away from those times renewed and refreshed. And so one day they came to him and they asked the Lord to, to teach them how to pray. And Jesus, if you remember, gave them what's called the Lord's Prayer. And what's the first word in that prayer? It's actually the word Abba, Daddy. The most important thing to understand about prayer is that when we pray, we find ourselves in the presence of one who comes to us not as this tyrant up there, not as a demanding boss, but as one who comes to us as a loving daddy, a loving father who only cares about what's best for us, who loves us more than we can know. When we pray, we remember that we are not the center of the universe, but God is. And we are reminded of just who this God is that we know. Tom, uh, Tim Keller, if I can uh, quote him again, reminds us. He says, the essence of prayer is not, give us this day our daily stuff. That's not the essence of prayer. That doesn't come first, does it? No, the essence of prayer is not forgive us our wrongdoing. As important as that is, that doesn't come first. So what comes first? Orientation. The essence of prayer is searing the senses of the mind and heart with a white-hot fact that in Christ, the cosmic Lord of the universe, has become your Father. That's the essence of prayer. That's the beginning of prayer. That's the thing on which everything else is based. If we grasp that fact about the nature of God, that changes everything. Man, we're going to want to pray and delight in the Father's presence. 
If we know that God is our Father, then there's nothing we cannot take to Him in prayer. There is nothing that, that He does not care about. Prayer reorients us to what's important, and we remind ourselves of the true nature of the God we worship and serve. Mark tells us that the following morning, after Jesus' busy day of preaching and, and healing, the disciples came looking for Jesus. In the Greek, the word really carries a sense of hunted. They were hunting for him. I mean, they couldn't find him. They were getting desperate. Where is this guy? Where did he go? And you have the sense that they were not a little bit frustrated with him. Not only was he hard to find, but already there was a line forming outside Peter's house. A long line of need. And so the disciples finally found Jesus and said, Come on, Jesus. Come on. What in the world are you doing here? Man, we got things to do. You are a star. <laughs> Come on. The people are waiting for you. Everybody's looking for you. Perhaps in their minds, they kind of felt that Jesus was wasting precious time. Sometimes I wonder if that's in our mind too, when we're so geared to being busy and active and, and we equate uh, busyness with our own self-worth. Sometimes it may seem to us that prayer is just kind of a waste of time. I mean, we should be doing things. But what if prayer is, is a priority? And it will actually enhance all of our doing. Jesus, having prayed, came away with sharpened focus and a real, realization that his call was not just to that one little community of Capernaum, nor was it to heal everybody of their physical illnesses. He was not primarily a healer, a physician of the body, but rather his mission was wider and deeper than that. He needed to go elsewhere to go and to preach good news in word and deed. The physical healing was just a sign of the good news. Repent, turn around, enter the kingdom of God, for God's rule has arrived. And so Jesus replied to the disciples who found him finally, well, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So that Jesus came away from his time of prayer more focused on ever on his mission. He was reminded of his purpose in life. He knew what the Father was calling him to do. So now here is where the rubber hits the road for you and for me. If the practice of prayer was Jesus' absolute priority, the very foundation of his life and ministry, so too it ought to be for you and me who are called by his name and who seek to continue his ministry in the world. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray to accomplish his mission, how much more is it necessary for us to pray, we who are so weak and so flawed and get so easily distracted by life. I mean, it's exceed, exceedingly easy, I don't have to tell you this, actually, but it's exceedingly easy for us to lose our orientation, our direction, our life's focus and energy. 
And the fact is, most of us today are totally overscheduled, overworked, overstressed, and thus overwhelmed in today's world. I'm always on the lookout for new books to read. Um, I read a variety of things. Um, and in all my searching, I've noticed an abundance of books that address just how tense, unfocused, confused, and distracted our modern world has become. So here are just a few titles. Distracted, The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age by Maggie Jackson. Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. And The Tyranny of Email by John Freeman. That's just a little bit of a sampling. There's all kinds of books about this thing, this issue. One of the best Christian books last year, in 2014, was entitled, and this title drew my eye, Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. And DeYoung's view is that our crazy busyness is not only ruining our lives, it's destroying our souls. I'm reminded of a book that came out way back in 1972. It was written by the famous children's author Madeline Langle of uh, Wrinkle of Time fame. That book was entitled A Circle of Quiet. And the title came from a brook near her family home that she returned to again and again. For Langle, walking back into the woods to that brook allowed her at the same moment to walk away from all of life's busyness. Being there created a circle of quiet for her in the midst of the never-ending voices and demands of each day. So in her book she said, Every so often I need out. Something will throw me into total disproportion and I have to get away from everybody, away from all these people I love most in the world in order to regain a sense of proportion. Don't we all resonate with that? Sometimes we just... We need to get away. We need to get out. Even from the people we most love. Now all this isn't new. And I'm not saying anything really profound. But it's simply a reminder that in this crazy busy world with distractions everywhere, it's more important than ever that you and I find that quiet time before the Lord so that we can be rightly oriented and focused and energized to do what God would have us do. God usually speaks to us in a still small voice. And so we have to find a circle of quiet to listen. I like what Pastor Charles Swindoll says about his own practice of prayer. I think it's useful for us. He says, some of the best times in prayer are, are wordless times. I stop speaking, close my eyes, and meditate upon what I've been reading or upon what I've been saying, and I listen inside of myself. I listen deeply. I listen for reproofs. I think of myself as a home with many doors. As I'm meditating, and often it helps to close my eyes so I won't be distracted, I unlock doors and open them as I wait. It's here that the Holy Spirit invades. Then I take circumstances before him and listen with doors open. I've never heard an audible voice. It isn't that kind of answering. It's a listening down deep inside. 
It's sensing what God is saying about the situation. It's like what you do when you're in love with a person. Isn't it true, the deeper the love, the less has to be said? You can actually sit alone together by a fireplace for an hour or two and say very little, but it can be the deepest encounter in relationship you know anything about. So I want to encourage us to find a circle of quiet, to just be before the Lord and listen. What would be that circle of quiet for you? Is there a particular place away from the pressing demands of life that puts you in a frame of mind and heart so that you can actually listen to God? I mean, is it like a special place in the woods, like by a brook, like Madeline Langall, or is it a special room in your house, or a bench in your backyard? Um, are there holy places that you kind of gravitate to? Where you... my, uh, my two favorite places actually to, to pray is actually right here when nobody's here. Because there's something about praying here in this place where we worship that I feel like my prayers are being lifted up and become part of the, the prayer chorus of the whole community. Even though you're not physically present, I have a sense that my prayers are joining yours wherever you happen to be. And then my other favorite place to pray is actually the track of Harbor Point Middle School. And I figure I can kill two birds with one stone. I can attend to my physical needs and I walk fast. But I can also pray as I walk. Now what a concept, right? Who says that you have to pray necessarily with your eyes closed or that you have to be sitting down or prostrate on the floor or what have you? You can pray as you walk along. I prefer the track because I don't have to, I don't have to worry about where I'm going. Yeah, just, you just go around and around and around and around. And then if you don't have to worry about where you're going, then you can pay more attention to God and pray. That's my thing. You all have your own thing. You have different needs. You have different places. But what is your circle of quiet? Jesus seemed to prefer the outdoors, so he'd go and find a big rock or <laughs> wherever. Uh, however, he also offered counsel to us in his Sermon on the Mount where he says, using the words, the, the rendering in the message, Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. That's kind of like the reorientation that prayer offers. We, we reorient ourselves. We get our, our mind off of ourselves and our needs. And we put God at the center. We remember who God is. So find a place and, if possible, find a regular time to meet God. For some, it may be the early hours of the day. For others, it may be the end of the day. How much time one spends in quiet and prayer varies from individual to individual, but the important thing is that we find time to pray. Now, my intention here is not to make us all feel guilty for not praying as much as we should, because I don't think any of us are totally happy with the frequency or the quality of our prayer life. It could always be better. 
And prayer should never be seen as a duty or an obligation or another thing to put on our to-do list. God's word comes to us this morning as simply an encouragement to pray and to give it the priority it deserves for it puts all of our to-dos in proper perspective and focus. In this crazy busy world, how important it is to pray to maintain our proper orientation in life, our connection with God the Father, and to sharpen our focus on what matters most in life and what you and I are being called by God to do. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Prayer is the most important thing in my life. If I should neglect prayer for a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of faith. Another great man of God, a man by the name of William Law, once said, He who has learned to pray has learned the greatest secret of a holy and happy life. Prayer, solitude, the absolute foundation of Jesus' life and ministry. And so it should be for all of us who are called by his name, who want to be his disciples. He is the model and the encouragement. So let us follow him. Let us pray. Gracious God, again, we're reminded of your true nature, how you come to us as daddy, as a, a, a father who loves us more than we know, who longs to give good gifts to his children. And so, Lord, we would come to you frequently, knowing that you long for our fellowship. You desire us to be with you. Because you would have us understand that to listen to you in times of quiet will enable us to serve you all the more effectively. And we'll grow in our attentiveness. Lord, teach us to seek you frequently. We need you. We lean on you. And Lord, as we think about prayer, we, we think about who, how great you are. We think about our own needs, which is also part of prayer, of course. But we also pray for others, and especially, uh, certainly on my mind and heart, is the, uh, the need of the country of Nepal, and how appalled we all are, actually, of the loss of life from that earthquake, 2,000 lives lost. We can't imagine what that must be like the suffering and the, and the fear. So, we, Lord, we lift up all those who are impacted by that to you. Comfort them as only you can. And we look forward to that day when you'll bring all things to its proper completion, that all of creation will be brought in proper alignment with you. We remember that we still live in a fallen world, but we look forward to that time when there sh shall be no more tears, no more earthquakes, no more pain, no more heartache, but all will be all in you and in your love. You will bring about your good purposes for us and for this world of ours. And so we thank you. We pray all these things in the name of the one who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.